This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know this week. The word fabulous is probably a gross understatement. Our guest is just absolutely riveting, an incredible Jewish leader, and open, vulnerable, passionate advocate for Jewish adoption. In addition to his role as a rabbi in Montana, the chief rabbi of Montana, so to speak, the head Chabad Shaliach, based out of Bozeman, you're in for a real treat. And for those listening in real time, I'm a little bit off schedule this week. It's been a crazy, crazy beginning of the semester for me here on campus here in the first week of September 2019. So I have not had a chance to put out an episode yet, this being Wednesday. Normally I like to put out on Monday or at latest Tuesday. And I considered skipping altogether this week until I realized how moved I was by the interview that I conducted with Rabbi Chaim Brook just late last week on Friday and decided I had to get something out and I had to get him out specifically without waiting much longer. In addition, I imagine with some of the holidays coming up over the next five to six weeks, there might be a week or two at that time that I'll have to miss and I really want to keep our consistent flow rolling here as we approach episode number 100 in just a few short months. A reminder once again to hit subscribe wherever you are listening to this episode, whether that is on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, wherever it might be. Please share, spread the word to others who might be interested, leave a rating and review. Also follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook, and with the letter U on Twitter. And now, to my absolutely mesmerizing conversation with Chabad of Montana rabbi and adoption advocate, Rabbi Chaim Brook. And we are here with Rabbi Chaim Brook of Chabad of Montana. I guess we can call him the chief rabbi of Montana, perhaps. Absolutely. And also also a great advocate for adoption and has a really, really fascinating story. How are you, Rabbi? Baruch Hashem, rocking and rolling, getting ready for Shabbos here in Bozeman. Awesome. So now, not everyone, of course, can see this is only audio, but I do see you on our video chat here, and I see this beautiful, like, log cabin-looking kind of structure. It seems very Montanan. Uh, is that, yeah, is that I took correct? over the Unabomber's cabin after they arrested him. So I got, <laughs> I got a nice cabin out here in Montana. Beautiful, beautiful. You and Phil Jackson. <laughs> there you go. For those who, don't, who get that reference. Sound like you're from L.A. if you care. Yeah, not from that. L.A., just a, just a sports fan. So uh, anyway, Rabbi, I know you didn't start in Montana. I believe you started in a slightly more populous Jewish environment. So tell us a little bit about where you're from and what your upbringing was. I grew up in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, um, one of five children to my parents. My father's an Israeli, Chabadnik, a Lubavitcher. Uh, my mother's a Brooklyn girl. 
um, both from many generations Chabad and until I was 24, Crown Heights was my home base, although I went to yeshiva in various places in the Rabbinical College of America in Morristown. I was in Eretz Yisrael in Israel. And when I was 24, I uh, threw a wonderful shatchan, a matchmaker. I, uh, I met my wife, Chavi, who's the daughter of the Chabad Shluchim in San Antonio, Texas. So Chavi grew up, Chavi grew up in South Texas, uh, a Texan. She was six months old when her parents moved out to San Antonio. Wow. And so we dated, you know, in the typical, uh, in, at least in the somewhat typical traditional dating scene of a couple of weeks. And uh, our first date was on January 1st of 2006. And we were married on March 22nd of that year. Of that year. I was going to say. Yeah, I wanted to point out that year. Yeah. <laughs> um, we got married in San Antonio. I spent, we spent the year in Crown Heights. Um, I went to Colo. I helped out at Chabad headquarters a little bit. She was working, she was teaching at various schools. And what we knew from the day, from when we were dating, Montana was on the radar because I had spent a couple of summers as a Chabad yeshiva student roaming Montana, visiting with Jews, putting up mezuzahs, putting on tefillin, selling books, fabringing with people, sitting and sharing uh, Jewish tales with Jews all across Montana from the far east of Montana out in Miles City, um, which Eastern Montana is very flat, uh, very, I, I would venture to say, even slightly boring versus all the way out to Western Montana, which is picturesque and gorgeous and mountainous, uh, rivers and mountains and just, you know, incredible, incredible uh, views of nature and experience of nature. So I spent a couple summers doing that. So by the time I dated Javi, um, I had mentioned it, I believe it was our second date at Starbucks. And I said, you know, I just want you to know I've been spending some summers in Montana. And if there's the right opportunity, I would want to know if you, you would entertain moving there with me. And she, without even second guessing it, she said, sure, I'd like to check it out first, but I would definitely move there. So the morning after our first anniversary, so um, on the Hebrew calendar, we got married on the 22nd of Adar. Um, and the 23rd of Adar the following year, uh, we moved out to Bozeman, Montana. And uh, the rest is history. We've been um, in Montana for a long time. Well, so now moving back a little bit earlier on, did you know growing up that you wanted to go out there on, on what's called shlichos? For those not familiar, that's many, many young people from the Chabad community go out to locations all around the world as emissaries of the Lubavitcher Rebbe to spread Judaism to the four, far corners of the earth. So did you know early on that this is something you wanted to do or it came when you met your wife? Well, well, let's. I'm glad you backtracked a little bit. So until I was 12, I merited to live in the community with Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory. And for me, you know, whether I understood it fully, even though I spoke Yiddish, but you know, I'm a kid, you know, you're not paying attention to Fabrengans, you're not listening, you know, to the, to the detailed talks of the Rebbe, but it was clear that the Rebbe's vision for the world was that every human being should inspire another human being. So you know, I know that uh, Chabad, we like to own the concept of outreach. And we can always take credit for the Rebbe being the pioneer of that. There's no question about it. But the reality is the Rebbe's vision was way beyond Chabad. The Rebbe wanted every individual that has the ability, and sometimes even if they don't have the natural ability, to garner that ability, to awaken that ability within themselves, and go inspire another person. The Rebbe's motto was always, if you know an olive, teach an olive. If you know a base, teach a base. You don't have to be the world scholar in Talmud to go out and teach another Jew, because if you know a little bit and there's a Jew that knows nothing, it's an opportunity for you to be the teacher and them to be the student. So I always, I was always 
guided by that vision of the Rebbe. My mother claimed, my mother, Allah Shalom, always claimed that uh, from a very young age, um, I was definitely talkative. That was never a problem in the family, <laughs> but uh, sometimes to a fall. Um, but I always had a, a sort of an inkling to go out and, and do social activism, if you wish. So when I was 12 years old, um, or maybe even, a, yeah, 12 years old, 1993, 1994, my friend Mendy and I we were classmates. He had just ter- turned bar mitzvah. So he had his own peer of tefillin. So we started what was called a Miftsoyim route, which Miftsoyim is the campaigns that the Rebbe did. And so we started a route on 47. My father's office was on 47th Street in the Diamond District in Manhattan. So every Friday we would get on the subway. At the age of, remember, I was 12 years old. My friend was just 13. We went to, we used to go to Manhattan. We'd go from store to store. Um, the exchanges on 47th Street, the Diamond Exchanges, and walk up booth to booth. Now in New York, on 47th Street, you don't really have to ask people if they're Jewish because very high percentage them. <laughs> of them are. And before you have a chance, many of them will say good Shabbos to you. So you already got the, you got the story. But we put on tefillin. Um, we'd give out brochures about Shabbos, about the Parsha. Um, we'd put mezuzahs, calendars. And the result was that it's now, I don't know, uh, 30, not 30, uh, 25 years later. And most of those people that were my original group of people that I would visit every Friday in Manhattan are still supporters of mine, meaning they support Chabad of Montana. Incredible. Something that started as a young kid, um, the relationships are definitely still there. And for some of them, those that are able to, they still support my, our work. So, you sure they didn't mean Chabad, they didn't mean Manhattan and they got confused with Montana? You know, you know that we have, to, to 20 miles away from Bozeman, there's a place called Manhattan, Montana. <laughs> and when I first moved here, people would say, uh, I just came from Manhattan. I look at them like, what do you mean you just? And then I figured out that you got to learn the lingo. <laughs> now, now it's the other way around. I tell people I just came from Manhattan. They think, Rabbi, you just flew in. No, no, I was just down the block here in Manhattan. <laughs> so, um, actually, it's a funny story. If you Google it, why they named the Manhattan Montana, it had to do with the actual Manhattan. But, uh, but in all, in all seriousness, my entire life from that, the age that I can remember, I always um, idolize those that were out in the boondocks doing this kind of work. Um, until today, if you ask me as someone living in Montana, I know people say Montana, it's out there. It is. It is out there. And there's a lot of challenges. But when I think of guys, and I've been to Russia, or the guys living in the Far East, like in Cambodia and Vietnam, you couldn't give me, you could promise me Ghanadin 35 times over, you couldn't get me. Uh, the only thing that can get me to a place like Cambodia is if the Rebbe literally said to me, Chaim, go to Cambodia. But short of that, you ain't getting me to a place like that because I'm an American boy. And no matter how I twist it, there's certain comfortabilities that you have by being an American that even in Montana I can get. Sure, the mail gets here a little slower. And the internet, I was just telling you, the internet providers can learn a thing or two and we're going to get 5G probably in 2037. (laughs) But uh, in the meantime, it's still America. People still speak the language that's native to me. The mentality is still one that's native to me. And... uh, and so I, I love Montana. I love the experience, um, even with all its challenges of being a religious from Jew and trying to inspire others in that path out in Montana. So it, your own family, though, your own parents weren't actually out there in the field. It was really something that was natural to you. And you kind of got excited about being around, you said, the Rebbe and, and just in general, you had that yeah, in- and, and, and the truth is that my, my, my family, my siblings, my two sisters, um, one, one sister married a shaykhet, who's also a rabbi of a young Israel show in Canada, but he doesn't have a conventional Chabad house. 
My other sister's husband, as well as my two brothers, are all, all three of them are in business. And my father was in business. Right. And my grandparents were local Crown Heights residents. My grandfather was a butcher. He ran the biggest gmach to give free lo- you know, interest-free loans in Crown Heights. But he wasn't a shliach. But my uncle, my mother's oldest brother, was a, one of the first shluchim to South Africa. And that was something that always made a difference to me because they always spoke about my uncle in South Africa. But personally, I didn't know on a personal level many of the shluchim. I was a good Crown Heights kid. I knew everyone in Crown Heights. And I knew shluchas was a real thing, but it wasn't, no. It was something that had to come from within. And I can't pinpoint the moment that that transition happened, but I have no doubt that, you know, hearing the Rebbe, I mean, there was a time in 19, I think it was 85 or 86, literally in the middle of a fabrenga, in the middle of a gathering where most of the people at the gathering were locals, right? Crown Heights locals. And the Rebbe said in Yiddish, Go become emissaries and go conquer the world with Yiddishkeit. When you hear that as a 15-year-old yeshiva student, what are you going to say? I want to, I want to go be an accountant? There's nothing wrong with accountants. We need them. They're a wonderful thing. And, and by the way, my father was in business. And I want to give you an example of what a typical Lubavitcher businessman does. Right? We, we, we always make the differentiation because it's easy. There are those that are shluchim, those that aren't. My father would send out approximately 100 boxes of shmura matzah before Pesach to his customers, right? The people he was doing business with because he knew they were Jewish and they needed matzah for Pesach. So here he's taking his own money. No one's, Chabad headquarters isn't bankrolling him. He's taking his own money to do that because that's something that's ingrained in each of us, whether we're actively shluchim or not. And so did that affect me? I'm sure in some way that affected me too. But uh, honestly, with all, and trust me, and maybe we'll talk about it soon, but from a financial perspective, from an education, from my children perspective, um, from so many perspectives, um, there are challenges living in Bozeman, Montana. There's nothing, I wouldn't give it up for another job in the world. Even um, Cambodia. <laughs> certainly not Cambodia, but I'm saying even if you gave me a cushy, you know, there was a, a wealthy man, I don't want to mention his name, he's not, he's not amongst the living anymore, a very wealthy secular Jew who once said to me in his penthouse in Manhattan, he said to me, Rabbi, if you leave Montana and come to the city, I will build you a $3 million synagogue. Why are you wasting your time with the Jews of Montana? There's not enough mm-hmm. of them. And I said to him, you don't understand that this is my, my life's mission is to the Jews of Montana. So he says to me, he says, Rabbi, in business, if you have a great business, but someone offers you a better opportunity, you take it. So he obviously, he saw souls as business. And I try to have that conversation with them. And it didn't, I have to be honest, I did not succeed. And before I had a chance to succeed, he wasn't amongst the living anymore. But so I'm now, never, now he understands. Huh? <laughs> I would say now he understands. Now he for sure understands. I wish he could send a check from where he is right now. But that's, <laughs> no, that's not possible. That's what, it, that's what a bequest is, Rabbi. <laughs> but, you know, that was a moment. I, I'll tell you, I was sitting in Manhattan with that moment where he said, you know, it only happened once. Someone said to me, and he actually had the building. He told me where he would build the shul. He says, you're charismatic. You're outgoing. I would even, but not in Montana. Never gave me a dollar for the Jews of Montana because in his mind, they weren't worthy of a charismatic rabbi being there. I know that I can probably get a nice gig. I'm assuming in New York or South Florida with a nice cushy job with, you know, a 20 year contract or whatever, however it works. I've never had a contract. I don't know how it works. (laughs) I never had a board, you know, all that stuff, but that's not what it's about. It's about the Jew living in Miles city who has a mezuzah. Now it's about the Jew in Helena that decided they want to kosher their kitchen and get kosher meat through us. And now they're keeping kosher. And those are things that are not, there's no item, there's no price line on those things. They're, they're, they're priceless moments that no one could put a price tag on. 
how, how did you get to Montana? You said that early on you were traipsing around. Was it somewhere you had gone on vacation? No, why, no, no. Why, uh, why Montana? Chabad headquarters sends yeshiva students to remote places in the summer where there are no permanent Orthodox uh, representation. And so in, in 2004, they said to me, Chaim, um, why don't you do the, the, the Mountain West? So I said, what does that mean? They said, oh, Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. I said, uh, first of all, Idaho had just got their first shliach, so we don't have to do Idaho. Let him take care of it. But how in the world do you want me to do Montana and Wyoming in three and a half to four weeks? You ever look at the map? Do you know the size of these places? They said, no, that's how it's been done for 40 years. I said, sure. But for 40 years, they've only met, you know, seven Jews in Montana, seven in Wyoming. Then they got to go back to New York because just driving time. Right. Find people. I said, how about this? Why don't we divide it up? I'll take one state and we'll, we'll focus on one state. So they said, sure, take Montana. So my friend Yitzchak and I, who's today, Yitzchak is the Chabad rabbi in Bend, Oregon today. Um, we, we came out in the summer. We landed in, in Billings, Montana on Erev Tisha B'Av 2004. Our first day of doing outreach in Montana was on Tisha B'Av. I, I remember because I remember walking into a law, a law firm wearing slippers and trying to stay as far away from the desk of the lawyer so I don't kill him with bad breath because of the fast. <laughs> and we came in. And uh, his name was Jeff, Jeff Simkovic. I'll never forget. And we put on film with him. He's a guy originally from the Bronx. And uh, we, started, we started traversing Montana from Billings. And then we found out it was two hours east in Miles City. And eventually made our way all the way to Eureka, which is at the border of British Columbia, the northwest part of the state. And it was an incredible experience. And so the next uh, winter, I was hanging around New York. And I said to someone, said to me, so what are you going to do next year for... Uh, for uh, the summer, I said, I don't know, maybe they'll send me to Mississippi. <laughs> so his name is Rabbi Kotlarski, Rabbi Moshe Kotlarski. He's the vice chairman of Chabad headquarters. He said to me, you know what I think? I think you should go back to Montana. So I said, why? So he said, because now that they know you, if you come back a second time, that's a relationship. Mm. And he was absolutely correct. So I came back in the summer of 2005 with another friend because Yitzchak was already moving on in life. I think he was married already. So my friend, uh, and I came out in, uh, Arik and I came out in the summer of 2005. And then he was 100% right from the first doorbell we rang. And you have to remember, we, we, I, I didn't make, we didn't have, at that point, we barely had GPS. I don't even think we had GPS. We were using maps, which we were traveling around Montana. And, you look, and it was great. I learned how to study maps. Um, but you show up at a house and they're not home. So you leave a brochure and you come back. And it's a whole, until you get in, finally get in front of a Jew. So we, we, it was an incredible experience. And following that summer, Pesach, I sent, uh, I sent matzah to every Jew I knew in Montana, Shmura matzah, and the response was overwhelming. Uh, even Chabad headquarters was fascinating. We got like $2,800 came in in the mail from a matzah mailing to Montana. That was unheard of. And so in December of 05, about two weeks before I dated Chavi, I took my sister, and uh, I couldn't find any yeshiva guys that wanted to go to freezing Montana in the uh, in December, so my sister agreed to come, and we spent we made four Hanukkah parties in four different cities in Billings, Bozeman, Helena, and Missoula, and that was it. And a week later, I flew to Texas and dated Chavi, and uh, obviously the following summer in '06 is when I brought Chavi out to check out Montana for herself. And as we flew out of Bozeman that in the summer of '06, I said to her, "New, no, what do you think about Bozeman?" I remember Bozeman is. Montana, but it's almost like a bubble within Montana because it's the northern gateway to Yellowstone National Park. Wow. It's only 40 miles north of the Big Sky Ski Resort. 
Um, it's right on the I-90 where, you know, you're easily connected to Billings, Butte, Helena, Missoula. So it's a kind of central to the- Is that most where the university is also? One of the two. There's the University of Montana, which is in Missoula. Montana State, which Tennessee. today has 16,500 students, is here in Bozeman. So there's obviously Jewish faculty and, you know, it's more of a vibrant, progressive town. Cosmopolitan, yeah. Yeah, yeah, big. They actually named it the number one for a while. It was named the number one micropolitan in the United States. So they invented <laughs> a new name for it. Um, so that's it. And so we, we decided in the summer, I spent six months raising funds because no one, you know, gives funding for it. We were, we were granted a wonderful seed money um, by the late Sammy Rohr, the father of the philanthropist George Rohr. Sure. Sammy was a, an incredible support for our first three years here in Montana. And we continue to have a wonderful relationship with the Rohr family. But today, with a budget of about a half a million dollars a year, we're raising close to two-thirds of it in-state. So it's, it's been an incredible journey on a financial side as well. Um, we've got a long way to go. But uh, we're, we're, as I always tell people in Bozeman, we're just getting warmed up. But we're rocking and rolling. And today, we have three Chabad houses in Montana. We opened up a branch in Missoula and another branch in Kalispell. So you brought out other colleagues to come and join? Other couples. Yeah, we brought four years ago. We opened up a branch in Missoula near the University of Montana, and uh, about nine months ago, my wife's sister and her husband, uh, we hired them to open the Chabad in the Flathead Valley up near Glacier National Park in the Flathead Lake. Incredible, gorgeous part of the wow. forget about part of Montana. It's an incredible, gorgeous part of the world, um, and they're doing wonderful. They're actually going to have a bris for their baby on Tuesday next week. Wow. They had a ba- their second baby boy. So I mean, Baruch Hashem, Yiddishkeit is really picking up and. Uh, like, I, I, you know, I, I don't say this facetiously. I mean it that, you know, we're just warming up. I'll bet you get a t- many, many tourists out there besides the regular Montanans, right? June through September, we get, we get an, an average Shabbos in Bozeman. We have anywhere from 10 to 30 from tourists that are with us for Shabbos. They join us for the meals and for the davening. It's, it's wonderful. Hotels nearby or? There is. There's a hotel that's a mile nearby. There's Airbnbs that are nearby. And I think it's an incredible thing that we've seen in our community where the locals interact with the visitors. And so the locals are tend to be from very secular backgrounds sure. are interacting and vice versa. People that are from very from backgrounds who yep. uh, very rarely interact and see the soul of a secular Jew for what it is, a beautiful shining soul. So I think it's a win-win on both, on both ends. And I, I, I've seen the result of it for now 12 years. So it's been an incredible thing to witness. How many actual Jews are there, by your estimation, in Montana? And how do you even discover them? Is it all word of mouth? One introduces you to the next. Like, I, I, imagine gave, you the, no, I gave you the secret of how Chabad... No directory, so, right? <laughs> if I gave you the secret of the formula of how Chabad finds Jews, then I'd be giving away a trade secret. You know, have to hey, let's you. do it right here on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> the answer is really that it's Chavra Chavra Isla. You know, one person tells you about another one. A grandmother calls you and tells you that a grandson is going to college. A mother calls you secretly and tells you, you know, I, I don't tell him I told you, but my daughter just moved to Bozeman. Her husband's not Jewish, but I really would love if you go put up a mezuzah. Uh, I have one lady who sent me a check and said, please bring some jelly donuts for Hanukkah to my son. <laughs> so, so it, it, and the word spreads, you know, business-wise as well. You know, people are doing business. A realtor will call me and say, Rabbi, just FYI, I just showed a house. Now, maybe they're not supposed to. But this is, this is Montana and this is Chabad. And we have a network of people that understand. They don't understand only that I'm Jewish and I'm looking for Jews. They also understand that I will treat that Jew in a way that won't be offensive to them. So they have nothing to lose by introducing them to me. Sure. They know because they've been to Shabbos dinner. They've been to Hanukkah parties. They've been to Pesach Seder. They know that the Jew that's moving in will only benefit and be grateful to them um, because of it. And many times what will happen is that the people 
will tell their people that, you know, let's say they meet a new Jew, they'll say, hey, do you ever meet Chaim? They go, no. And they'll say, should I meet Chaim? He says, oh, you got to meet Chaim. Should I, can I give Chaim your number? And most of them will say, yeah. And so that's how we'll start. And today, I mean, we have a network around the state. You answer your original question. My estimate is that probably four to 5,000 households in Montana that have at least one Jew. That's out of a population of, we're just above a million here in Montana. Wow. It's a very small percent. We're, you know, we're, we're a smaller percentage than, I believe we're even smaller percentage than blacks and Hispanics in Montana. Um, again, Montana is 95 or whatever the percent is, white Caucasian. You have a percentage that's Native American. Um, and then there are a few Jews, but those few Jews now have the opportunity to really tap into authentic Yiddish guys because we make it available and we schlep around the state. It's not like we stay put. You know, a couple months ago, I was at the APAC convention in D.C. and on the train, taking the Acela train from D.C. to New York, I got a call about a Jew who I knew up in Conrad, Montana, which is an hour and a half north of Great Falls. Population is probably 200. And he passed away and his wife called me, who isn't Jewish. His wife called me and said, we need a Jewish funeral. And I knew I was going to be stuck on, you know, I was going to be in New York for the next two days. I called my brother-in-law Schneier in, in Kalispell. I said, you know where Great Falls is? Look on a map. You're going. Yeah. And he had never done Tahara before. I had done. There's no Heber Kadisha. We, do the, we, we are the Heber Kadisha. We wow. do it. So I said to him, you're going to have 24 hours of training. And then in 24 hours from now, you're going to be doing a Tahara on my friend Norman, Nochem Lepo, and you're going to give him a proper Yiddish burial. And Kachava, that's exactly what happened. And so we don't have the luxuries of, oh, we're just going to call the South Dade or North Broward, Heber Kadisha, or Shemre Hadas, and they're just going to take care of it. The greater Washington, Vada Rabbonim, we have the Vada Kashras here in Montana. We have, you know, the Heber Kadisha. We, we have the Gmilus Chesed. We're doing all the things. And by the way, on a secular front, there's no UJA, there's no Federation, there's no Hillel. So, you know, there's no Jewish family services. We have something called Project Dignity. If a Jew needs a car, if a Jew needs help with, with money, there's no one to turn to. They call the Chabad. And when is, what's interesting is many times they'll call the Reform Temple. The Reform Temple will give them the number of the Chabad which is great, as long as they know where the family, Jewish family services are. And so it really gives you a role that's very different than your typical, even than your typical Chabad house in a conventional city. So sure. we're, in that sense, we're more like the Chabad rabbi in Thailand or Nepal, although we, we have better amenities than they do. Just, I want to shift gears now because there's a whole nother dimension to what has brought you into the media, into the news, um, and that's your involvement in the, the adoption world. Um, if you could speak a little bit about your own journey in that respect, in terms of how you determined that you were going to go that route and, and what you've done and what you've learned. And, you know, I'll, I'll ask you some, some questions along the way, but, but give us the basic sure. narrative sure. Of, of how this came about. Yeah. So, so like I mentioned, Javi and I married in March of 06. And we moved out to Montana in March of 07. At that point, you know, we, we were not expecting a baby yet. And uh, the typical, uh, the average rabbonim, the rabbis that are involved in, in, in answering people's shilas, people's questions, said, oh, don't worry. Before two years, you have nothing to worry about. Okay, you know, somewhat comforting, but uh, I can't say it was very reassuring. But uh, as time passed, we realized something wasn't right. And so we started here in Montana at the time, there was not one infertility doctor. Today, Baruch Hashem, um, one of the doctors here in town did become an infertility expert. We went to school for five years during the time we've been here, but there wasn't any infertility doctor. So we traveled to New York and from doctor to doctor, and I have to mention because 
Shlaima Bachner, Rabbi Shlaima Bachner, and the people at Boina Yoilam are some of the most incredible human beings that I've ever met in my life. Um, and they, they held our hand through the entire infertility process from arranging doctor's appointments with the top specialists to being there on the days of the procedure um, to, to financially supporting it and arranging to get it covered. The bottom line is that the Sunday we, we underwent our medical procedures, uh, the doctor said it was Black Sunday to him because there were six couples and none of them um, succeeded and he, he labeled all six of them infertile. And so you imagine I was 26 at the time, my wife was 23, and they tell you, go home, you're not going to have any biological children. And go home to where? Not go home to your tight-knit community where they're going to go home to Montana where you're going to be alone in the middle of exile in Montana. So that day, you know, we, we recovered from our, our procedures and, and, and we went back to Montana very, very helpless and, uh, down, you know, distraught as an understatement and really didn't know which way to go. But I, I will say that on the day, on the day that, we, that the doctor said go home, it was Erev Shavuos. It was actually a Sunday Erev Shavuos procedure. And... A, a close relative of mine said, Bas based in the doctorate, what do the doctors know? You know, the Abishter wants, he can do whatever he can do. And on the other hand, my father-in-law, who's a uh, balanced individual, a wonderful, faithful Jew, but a balanced individual, said to me something, he said to both me and Chavi, he said, that must mean there are children out there that Hashem wants you to take care of. So he didn't, he planted a seed. And... We knew nothing about adoption. Adoption was taboo in the Chabad community and, and not because of any, uh, uh, there was no opposition to adoption. Simply, I think in generally in the from world, adoption it was very uncommon and therefore remained very taboo. And even when people adopted, they would keep it a secret from the kids, which today, obviously, psychologically, it's been proven as a very unhealthy thing to do because when they find out the truth later in life, it does not do well. You got to tell them from when they're very young. But we knew nothing about adoption. And we were, truth is that we weren't sure ourselves. Like, what do we want to do? And so this was, in, right, it was Erev Shavuos. The summer passed. And that November, I traveled to New York for the Chabad Shluchim Conference. And Saturday night at the Wingate Hall down on Kingston Avenue, they had a private session for the Chabad Shluchim. And I'll never forget it for all, as long as my memory serves me. I was sitting next to Rabbi Benny Zippel, who's the Chabad rabbi in Salt Lake City, Utah, a dear friend of mine. And he had no idea that we were undergoing it. No one knew besides our close relatives even knew that we were undergoing infertility. So sitting next to him in a video, they showed us a never published couple of clips of videos of the Rebbe. And they were never going to show it again. It was private, meaning they were showing it to the Shluchim to see at a one-time viewing and that's it. And basically you have three ladies coming by at three different occasions asking the Rebbe about children. And in one case, the Rebbe tells them to adopt. The second case, the Rebbe tells them to adopt either a Jewish baby or one that becomes Jewish through Gerus, through conversion. The third one, the Rebbe tells, you should have a baby, gives her a bracha to have a baby. She goes, when? And the Rebbe says, it has to take nine months. What do you want to have the baby right here? You know? And so it was very, it was very, um, and I'm sitting there, I froze. I'm sitting here during this whole time when Javi and I are trying to figure out the trajectory of our life. And it's like straight from heaven, we have this video where the Rebbe's encouraging people to adopt. I literally, I didn't say anything to Benny, who was sitting right next to me. I stood up and walked out of the hall, walked out of the building and called Javi, who was visiting her family in San Antonio. I said, Chav, 
You will not believe what I just saw. And it was clear for us that this was November of 2008. It was clear to us that we got a straight message that this is the path that we should pursue. And so we started pursuing it. And that's where the real challenge kicked in. You think once you decide to adopt a baby, everything, okay, tomorrow morning, there's going to be a baby ready for adoption. It was far from it. And so that same weekend in New York, I met my friend who's a Chabad rabbi in Moscow in Russia. And tell me if I'm getting boring, but I think the story is pretty fascinating. Yeah. And I, I was so distraught that I was sitting with him Shabbos and Shul at the Kiddush in this shul called Beis Shmuel in Crown Heights. And we had, maybe I said one l'chaim, a little l'chaim. I'm not a big, uh, I know we have the stereotypes. I don't, I don't say much l'chaim. And I'm sitting with Yossi. And I say, Yossi, I just want you to know what's going on. We're experiencing infertility. The doctors told us there's nothing to do. And we're looking to adopt. And I kind of, with a shrug of the shoulder, I said, if anything comes up in your world, you know, let me know. Fast forward to late September or early October 2009, almost a year later. I was on the way back from Simchas Torah in San Antonio. I'm in the Denver airport on a five-hour delay trying to get home to Bozeman. It's a big storm, as usual. <laughs> no, we, we get storms in Montana that are pretty impressive. Um, and I get a call. I see a number. I don't recognize it. It's not a, it's not a domestic number. I pick up. He's, and it's Yossi, my friend from Russia. He says, Chaim, he called me in my, Chabad, my, my full name. Chaim Shal, you remember you asked me about adoption? I said, of course. He said, are you still interested? I said, of course. So he says, well, I don't know if this is going to work out. It could be it's a far-fetched situation, but there's something brewing. Okay, something brewing. What do I know about something brewing? Make a long story short, three weeks later, which in the world of adoption is considered instant, right? Adoptions take years. There was a Jewish mother in Moscow. I'm going to backtrack. In, on August 28, 2000. Nine. So again, this is a month and a half before, or almost a little, just before, over a month after I got the phone call. It was a Jewish mother in Moscow on August 28th, Ches Elul, that gave birth to a baby girl. In the fifth, she she only found out in the fifth month she was pregnant, and she gave birth at 31 or 32 weeks. She gave birth to a preemie, and the doctors in Russia had done surgery on the baby and hooked her up on machine. She was in the hospital for 30 days. And the mother, who was very, very young, was not interested, but agreed to take the baby to, New to America on a medical visa to get the baby the medical care that she needed. So she slept, she slept to Jersey, and in Jersey um, decided there was too many medical complications that she's, not, she's going back to Russia without the baby. So she called her shliach in Russia, who happens to be my friend Yossi, who I had spoke to a year earlier, and said, I'm not taking this baby home. So Yossi said, come again? What do you mean? He goes, no, no, I'm, I'm just, I can't. It's too much. I was on a plane for 10 hours. The baby's screaming. I'm, I'm not. Yossi said, you ain't doing anything. Me and my wife, Luba, are getting on a plane. We're going to meet you in New Jersey before you do anything. So the shliach leaves his 10 or 11 children at home. With, and him and his wife, they get a babysitter. And they fly to New Jersey, to Newark, to go see what's going on with this poor young girl and her baby. And, you know, the baby has some medical stuff. But... She's adamant. She's not taking this baby. And so Yossi calls me and says, are you interested in adopting a baby? Are you still interested? 
Of course we were, so we had a lot of legalities to go through. But on November 10th, 2009, um, just a, a year over that video showed at that conference and just a year and a half over, a year and a half after we were diagnosed with infertility, we left the adoption agency in Shrewsbury, New Jersey, not too far from Lakewood, um, with a little baby who had already been named at the Torah in Moscow. Her name was Chaya, her name was Miriam, and then they added the name Chaya because of her health complications. And that Tuesday, which was Yom Gimel Shuhuchbal Beikitayv, is a moment that I'll never ever. You can't. Every time I think of it, my heart starts palpitating. You know, palpitating. It, it was an incredible moment where you finally have that chance to be a father, and my wife had the chance to be a mother, and all the pain of infertility that we experienced until then. It was almost as if it instantly disappeared. It, it wasn't like you sit there and you quit. It was, in, it was gone just at that moment. And a week and a half later, we flew back to Montana. We had a big adoption party in Bozeman. It was 125 people came to this big celebration we had in Bozeman. And it, 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 was, it, was, it opened up our eyes to something. First of all, that when the Hashem has a plan for you, that plan operates exactly when it's supposed to operate. No matter what you think that plan is supposed to be. You know, we make up plans all day. We think we know exactly how it's all going to be figured out. And it doesn't. You have to let him, you know, Yeshua Hashem is terrifying, but you got to go on Yeshua Hashem program. You know, whatever he decides the Yeshua is. We thought it meant that we need to be blessed with a biological baby. It turns out that Hashem had a different path for us. And that is like uh, Batya and Paroi. I'm sorry, like Batya and Moshe. Uh, Batya Bas Paroi adopting Moshe. Like Mordechai adopting Esther like Serach being adopted by Usher. I can go on the list of those that were adopted biblically. Abaya, right? In the Gemara, Abaya was adopted. You know, you don't, you don't look back and say, I think I have a better plan than Hashem has for me. You go with the flow. And if that flow means a little baby born in Russia that was with major medical complications, which Baruch Hashem have been healed for the most part in incredible, thanks to American med, you know, the American medical community, including here in Montana. And so um, the crazy part was that now that we opened up the world of adoption, and Chavi spoke at the Chabad Rebetzin's conference a few months later, so five months or four months after we adopted Chaya, I got a call from a Chabad rabbi in Hoboken, New Jersey. He says, hey, um, I don't know how to ask this, but are you guys... Um, and we have a situation with adoption. That's how every conversation starts. And so we said, listen, tell us more. And the bottom line is there was a mother that was about to give birth to a baby. Uh, it was pregnant. And 13 months later, September 30th, 2010, we adopted our second baby. She was born two weeks early. We weren't there. It was on Shmini Atzeris. And... Uh, it was a three-day holiday, three-day Yantav. So my sister and brother are the first ones to meet my daughter, Zisi. Um, and they ran, they, they, they zoomed to the hospital in New Jersey to pick her up. And uh, we met her the next morning. Could you imagine someone saying they met their baby for the first time in Newark Airport? <laughs> we met Zisi. Usually there has other connotations, yeah. <laughs> Enterprise, nobody has that. Enterprise Rent-A-Car at Newark Airport was the first place we met Zisi. <laughs> um, so it was an incredible moment where now Chaya had a sister who was like almost an Irish twin, only 13 months apart, but an incredible, incredible thing. Now, I, I will tell you that when, we told my, when I told my mother, who was still alive at the time, I said, Ma, we're thinking of adopting a second baby. She goes, what's wrong with you? It's adoption. It's not like, you know, 
you can choose when to adopt another baby. There's no, you know. So I said, Ma, I thought you always taught us that there's no family planning. <laughs> so she burst out laughing, and that was the end of the conversation. She never asked me again about that. And so, so that was high and ZC. And then when ZC about, let's see, uh, 2000, 2013. So ZC was about three years old. Chaya was four. I got a call from a Chabad, not a Chabad Shliach, but a Chabad Asken, uh, an activist who was involved in various therapeutic uh, helping people that were in tough situations and said, are you and your wife still interested in adoption? And would you be okay with a potentially black child? Now, for me, as a kid growing up in Crown Heights, I paused. You know, I, I mean, I shared it with Javi right away. She didn't hesitate for a moment. She's like, what do I care? Jewish, a, a Jewish baby needs a home. What do I care the color of the skin? It's irrelevant. To me, it was also irrelevant, but I was concerned about how that would affect this child growing up in a primarily white Ashkenazic community, going to Chabad schools that are primarily white and Ashkenazic. And, you know, Javi was very good at not only persuading, but educating me on what really matters in life. It didn't take long for her to convince me, and we said we're in. And so in April of 2013, we adopted um, our baby boy, named Menachem Mendel for the Rebbe. We adopted him in Maryland. And today he's a six-year-old, uh, beautiful um, black boy um, with a yarmulke and tzitzis living in Montana. Um, his name is Manny. We have a, you know, and the... Uh, so, so we have one boy and we had two girls and, and, uh, and that lasted for a while. So for, from 2013 to 2016, for almost three years, we had uh, three children. In the process of those three years, we also figured out that ZC has a very, very unique medical condition called GLUT1 deficiency, which is one in only 500 in the world have been diagnosed with, which is a, a huh. genetic disorder in which the blood-brain barrier doesn't carry energy from the blood, from the from sugar, from glucose to the to the body, and so the brain isn't getting the energy it needs. So the development is slow. In Montana, no one was able to diagnose it. We went from all these so-called specialists that come in from Utah, or wherever, they missed it. And finally, I got fed up because I knew something was wrong, and I paid a lot of money to go to a pediatric neurological place in New Jersey, a place that doesn't take insurance. But I said we need to figure out what's wrong with her. And it took them two and a half days, and they figured out that she has this ailment. It was, it was supported by the genetic testing. And there's no cure for GLUT1 deficiency, except that she has to be on a medically induced ketogenic diet. Not the fad ketogenic diet, but a real medically induced, where every piece of food she eats has to be weighed on a, on a scale and has to be certain five times a day. It's a very, very unique way of living. Even when we schlep overseas, there it's Israel to wherever, we have to take a cooler with all her meals prepped. But now she's developing incredibly. I mean, not just now. Over the last five years, she's been developing. We go to Denver, you know, once a quarter to have her diagnosed or, you know, assessed at the hospital, at the children's hospital uh, in Aurora in Colorado. But for three years, we had three children, one black, two white, and one with special needs. And then the summer of 2016 came along. And that's where things really shifted uh, to a different direction where... We have a very we have a small Jewish summer camp, a day camp here in Bozeman, and a a uh, grandmother from California asked if we would take her granddaughter who lives in Wyoming and Cody, Wyoming, take her into our summer camp. Now it's not an overnight camp, so we really don't take we take local kids. But she asked, and we said, you know, we'll take her for a week. She can stay in our house, 
And if it goes well, we'll let her stay for the second week as well. And she came. Her name was Courtney. And she spent, you know, she spent the first week. Um, and she did okay. You know, she, she, um, she went through the system, so to say. She made it through the week in our house. And so we said, you know, she could stay another week. The bottom line is that after the second week, she called her grandmother and said, I don't really want to go back. Now, give you some context. Her mother died when she was five. Her father was not really capable, to say the least. I'm being kind. And so she really finally had this experience of being in a wholesome home. But we never adopted. She was 12 years old. We never adopted a preteen. We adopted babies, and we thought we had that figured out. By the way, it turns out that you don't have anything figured out. As kids get older, suddenly you discover all these <laughs> new incredible things that you never heard about. Tell me about it. <laughs> no, no. Kids that are adopted have something called attachment disorder. Even if they're born, even if they're adopted at birth, they feel like they're not in their natural habitat, and so they have. To, if you don't give them proper therapy and get them the proper help they need, you can result. It can result in some traumatic stuff for them. Remember. Every child taken away from their parent, their biological parents at birth undergoes trauma, subconscious trauma. And so you need to recognize that and stop being a selfish, um, adoptive parent who thinks that, what do you mean? They're in my house and I, I'm the best parent in the world. I'm the best thing that could have ever happened to them. Why are they so ungrateful? They're not ungrateful because they're, because they're nasty. They're ungrateful sometimes or they're expressing ungratefulness because they're, they're struggling internally. And it's hard to realize that sometimes that as much as you give a child and as much as you care for them from the day they're born, they may not always feel like they're in their natural habitat and therefore will express some behavior that are really um, unhealthy behavior, but it's their way of saying, I feel like I don't belong. And if you don't give them the help for that, you, you, you cause that to be prolonged. But going back to Courtney, she needed a home. We said, you know, you got to go back to Wyoming. We got to think this over. It took us about two weeks, and we decided, you know what? If Hashem put us put her at our, at our doorstep, I mean, what are the chances? There's a Chabad in Wyoming. There's a Chabad, you know, in Denver. Why did she end up in Montana? If it wasn't Ashgacha Pratas, if it wasn't Divine Providence, she should be with us. So we took her in, and it's been a very long journey with her. I mean, she her name went from Courtney to Shoshana Yael. She changed her name. She got a Jewish name, Shoshana Yael, a name that she picked. She's now, she just turned 15. She's in a unique therapeutic school for equine therapy in Southern Utah because the conventional schools were not working for her. Sure. She needs intense therapy and we are giving her that. And, uh, you know, we just came back yesterday when, when you emailed me, I was in St. George in Southern Utah where we visited her for the first visit in, in school. And so she has a lifelong journey ahead of her, but at least she has what to facilitate that journey, a healthy home, a healthy Kaylee, a healthy vessel so maybe, you know, that her future can be, you know, she can make incredible progress and have a very bright future. And that was the summer of 2016. And then in March of 2017, and this wraps up kid number five for now. Um, you know, who knows what Hashem will send them. No family planning, like you said. <laughs> you know, I would like to, you know, Javi's. Javi would like to just fill up the house. I always say, I jokingly say to people that don't ever put Javi near the border with Mexico. She'll take all those 500 kids and bring them home. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I say that because we, we understand as parents, as adoptive parents, how painful it is to have kids taken away from their parents. And I don't care what people's politics are. I don't see this as a political thing. Parents being separated from their, ch children being separated from their parents has very, very, even 
by the court system, even if it's done right, has long-term effects that we can't even imagine. But, but that's Javi's mentality. If let's fill up this house and give a good life to as many kids as possible. I'm a little bit more conservative on that front. Um, but uh, so, so probably far, also doing the fundraising. So, <laughs> huh? Yeah, yeah, I'm the one that does the fundraising. <laughs> um, or, or I'm the one that maybe wants to one day be able to go on a trip with my wife and not have another baby in the house. You know, that's a full-time <laughs> job. But anyhow, putting that aside, um, in March of 17, I got a call from a, a woman here in Montana. And she said, you know, I'm about to have a grandchild. A Jewish woman called me. I'm about to have a grandchild and the, there's no home for this. I mean, she wasn't going to take the baby because it just wasn't right. She didn't think it was right to try to raise a grandchild. And the daughter wasn't up to it. And she said, do you know any couples that would be interested? So I was sitting outside the Bozeman Post Office. I'll never forget. And I said, yeah, we would. So she said, oh, that's what I was hoping you would say. <laughs> she was being, she the was old being, setup. Uh, yeah, she was trying to be, uh, you know, politically correct and not, you know, not mix into my business. But she was hoping that would be the response. And to make a couple of months journey, uh, the shorter version is that on August, uh, August eighteenth, twenty seventeen, in Montana at the hospital, um, Javi was there at the birth. I was there about ten minutes, fifteen minutes later. Um, we adopted. Our fifth child, Hanalea, named for my mother. So I was hoping for a girl because there was Shoshana picked her own name. Manny was a boy, and so I needed another girl to give a name. I was the only one of my five of the five of us, my siblings and I, who didn't have one ch a child named for my mother. And so uh, that Shabbos at the Torah, she was named Hanalea for my mother, and she's now she just had her second birthday. And so right now we have a 15-year-old, an almost 10-year-old will be 10, Chaya. Our first, so our first child is not our oldest child. <laughs> Chaya went from being the oldest to being the first. And I always tell her, you'll always have, you'll always be the one that made me a father. That will never change. And that's interesting because there is a little bit of a, you know, when you're, when you're the oldest child for, I don't know, for uh, seven years or six and a half, seven years, and then along comes another kid and now you're not the oldest anymore. There can be some rivalry there. Sure. And instead of ignoring it or making believe it doesn't exist, you have to recognize it. And when you recognize it um, and you deal with it head on, it's a whole different experience. And I have to say that, you know, my wife and I have learned so much through the world of therapy um, and how to deal with children of these particular backgrounds and how to deal with children that are unconventional, who don't see the world the way the typical Kranites kid sees the world, or even your typical Chabad kid growing up on Shlucha sees the world. Um, and so it's been very helpful. We read incredible books, you know, 20 things that adoptive kids would like their parents to know. Um, there's a book by an author named Brad Reedy about the, the effect of kids living in the wilderness a little bit and getting in touch with nature. There's so many aspects of it. And so, um, I feel very grateful that Hashem gifted us with five children in his own very interesting way. But I also recognize that I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Having five adopted kids has a load of responsibility above and beyond raising five children on a good day. Um, but somehow, if that's what Hashem wants from me, I'm going to have to pony up and get it done and done to the best of my abilities. You know, you can't, I mean, I guess you could ignore the responsibility that Hashem puts on you, but that would be silly because if you think you're going to find salvation or find comfort or find content in your life, meaningful content, meaningful experience outside of that, which Hashem has gifted to you, you're in a futile endeavor. And so 
adoption is a, is is the path that Hashem chose for us. And if one day the medical community comes up with an advancement where we can have a biological child, by all means, I'm open to it. I speak to Shlomo Bachner at Bainu Elam all the time. Where actually we became very good friends. Um, but in the process, we've also helped about ten or twelve other couples adopt children. And, and I was going to ask if people have turned to you as as a resource. Well, people turn to me at least once a week. Um, I get calls sometimes more than once a week from all over the world about as a resource for this concept of adoption. And also sometimes just a practical, how do I get started? Where do I start? Do I start with a home study? Do I start with an agency? Do I go to a private lawyer? Where do I go? Which states are good for adoption? Which states are horrible with their adoption laws? The importance of never, ever, um, God forbid, um, you know, paying for an adoption, which is considered human trafficking. You don't do that. That's against the law. And it's something you never want to touch with a 50-foot pole. So all these basic information, you really to be able to be a resource, but also practically. I mean, when the guy, there was a couple in Flatbush a couple months ago that adopted a baby boy that I was involved in arranging and connecting. I got the videos and the pictures of the, of the bris. I don't know, there was hundreds of people there, the bris in Flatbush. It's a guy I never met. It's only a guy that, you know, Rabbi Shea's Taub introduced me to and, and sure. made a connection. And the bottom line is, and the Abishta wanted it to happen, it happened. So we got to learn in life. And I, I learned this so many times, and yet I fail at it so often, where I think I'm going to do better than the Abishta plan. Right? Even with money, right? You run a Chabad house, there's, no, there's never money. The money comes in the bank and it's out the door before you blink. And then you get frustrated, you get overwhelmed. Oh my God, what's going to happen? And then boom, the money shows up in a way that you never dreamt it would. So why, why do I have to get stressed out? And why do I have to get all bent out of shape? when I know it's all going to turn out okay anyhow, but somehow I forget that too often. And I talk to myself so often about this concept, just letting go. Put your burden on Hashem and let Him sustain you. What, what's the famous, I, I've shared this song with people. There's a song, I don't even know where it comes from, but I heard it, a Yiddish song, it goes, Don't tell God how big your problems are. Tell your problems how big God is. Right? And so we, we always forget that. And I have to tell you, adoption reminds you that when Hashem has a plan and it's meant to be, it is going to happen. And if it's not meant to be, you can't dance and night this morning, you can dance and you can try from today till tomorrow. Ain't nothing going to happen. And so that's our story of adoption. I don't know, you know, I, I'm sure there's other details I missed, but that's the general story. How is the community the broader Jewish community or, you know, your family, your friends, your schoolmates from growing up, et cetera, how, how have they responded? And, and also has that changed over time as, as the stigma that you alluded to earlier receded and, and, and morphed at all over time? Is there a more tolerant attitude now than, than when you started? So, so I have to say that when we announced, the first adoption of Chaya. Obviously in Montana, where adoption wasn't taboo, right? In a secular community, the, the community was incredible. But the novelty was that even in Chabad, um, the, the response was incredible, was overwhelming. I mean, the calls, the emails, I mean, it was just, it was new. So I knew people had, you know, but and that was really the test. I knew it was new to them and I wasn't in denial of that. But how did they, actually responded responded in, in the most beautiful way literally as if we just gave birth to a biological child um 
And I know that's not always the case. I know a Jew that adopted a baby, and when he came into his Chesidah Shashtibul once, this is 20 years ago, his best friend said to him, what are we supposed to tell you? Are we supposed to tell you Vincent Mazel Tov? Are we supposed to tell you Mazel Tov? Because of course, what do you mean? So that's not what we, our response was, uh, you know, the response we got was incredibly positive. I think the biggest novelty um, was when we adopted Manny, who was black, and that was a hard thing for people to swallow. Again, I, and I don't believe it comes from a place of racism. I really believe it comes from a place of just the unknown. We've never had that. You come into shul. When I came in with Manny, when he was three years old, he had dreadlocks before his upshirt, before his third birthday. And I came into 770 in Crown Heights because my Zaydi was davening there and I wanted to introduce him. And I could see and I could hear people mumbling and what, who's that, you know, who's that kid? What's that kid? And we joke, by the way, I have to tell you, we joke amongst ourselves, like we're on a flight and Manny's misbehaving. I'll say to Javi, who is that kid? <laughs> you know, and so you have to have a good sense of humor, but also understand that you need to give people time to deal... I would never tolerate outright racism. But if someone's a little uncertain or you could see there's a little hesitation or they're trying to figure out what that is and how it works, it's okay. And you just have to be there to help them to go through that journey. And I'm sure my relatives, my closest, my siblings, my, my father, my mother wasn't alive anymore. I always wonder what she would think. Um, she was a Brooklyn girl. But I'm sure for my father and my siblings, there was moments where they're like, oh, God, how are we going to explain this one? Now, here goes Chaim and Chavi making our life complicated again. Now we have to answer for this one. Adoption was hard enough. Now they got to adopt a black kid. But the truth is that at the Briss, which was in Maryland, because we couldn't make it back to Montana yet due to interstate laws, um, our family and good friends came in from New York, from Illinois, from Oklahoma, from wherever they were, from and my, my father was there and he had a kibbutz and my shver was a son. And it was an incredible bris. And I don't think anyone's ever looked back. And many such a ball, he's a, he's a ball of joy. And so, I, you know, sure. Is he going to have moments in yeshiva where someone's going to say something really, really inappropriate? You bet. And I'm going to train him from day one that that's a reality for life. He shouldn't turn himself into a victim. He should learn to either address it. If the person's capable, he should address it to them and say, you know, that's not an okay thing to say about me just because of my skin color, especially because I grew up in Shlichas and a Chabadas. I've been running, I've been living in a Chabadas my entire life. Who the hell do you think you are to talk to me like that? But more importantly, you know, he may in life have to take a tougher stance in standing up to some, whether it comes from the Jewish community or outside the Jewish community. But, uh, I, you know, I, I am... I don't, I don't see it as a reason for a Jewish kid. By the way, he was, he was born to a, a wonderful, you know, to a Jewish mother. Um, and and why, why should he get a, a second tier life just because it makes it a little uncomfortable once in a while? And so that has perhaps been the biggest of the challenges. I mean, when we adopted a 12-year-old, people literally thought we've, our, our, our brains have fried because anyone that has a teenager or a preteen, <laughs> that was crazy. Why would you ever take a 12-year-old who you didn't even raise? Like you're getting just, just a crap, boom. 12 years of baggage, crash into your life. Here you go, run with it. That's what Hashem sent. What should I tell you? You know, I, 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 some days I wonder what I was smoking. But when I see the results and I see where Shoshana's grown and, and where she would have been had she not been with us, you can't look back. It's a silly, again, it's a, it's a futile endeavor to look back. You got to take what Hashem gives you and run with it. In closing, anything you'd yeah. like the, the world to know, the listeners to know about adoption, about you know, that experience and, and, you know, what, you know, you said there's 20, you read the book, 20 things you wish the kids would know. What, what's one thing that you wish the world would know or the Jewish world would know about adoption and about that experience? 
Well, firstly, I'll say that in the Jewish world, we have this tendency, you know, you go to an engagement party and you find the oldest single person in the room and you say, may you merit a simcha soon too, and you ruin their night because they weren't thinking about their, the fact that they were single. They were just celebrating their sibling's engagement and you just ruined it by, you know, reminding them that they're single. So when you meet an adoptive family, adoptive couple, the last thing you should tell them is, may you, may, I hope Hashem blesses you with your own children. Right? I don't need my own children. I got five of my own children. If you want to tell me Hashem should bless me with biological children, I accept the bracha. And I get it. But don't tell me my own children, because I got five children that with sweat, blood, and toil, um, they will testify are my own children. Um, the other thing I would just say is that, you know, you really never know what's going on in someone's life. The fact that my wife and I are so open about infertility and adoption is because of our, our style, our personality. But people are struggling out there. I got a call yesterday. I was in Idaho on the way back from Utah, and I got a call from a colleague who, Baruch Hashem, did have, they had infertility, and then they had a couple of children, and now they just, they just had their second, um, their second miscarriage in a, over, over, over a two-year period. No one knows this about them. Right? You might meet them and say something silly like, oh, is there another one on the way? What's going to be? Are you guys going to have another one? You know, some... Why, what, what are you mixing into someone's most private life without knowing what the background story is? And so the key is whether you're, a, whether you're talking to your rabbi or to your rabbitson or to your close friend or someone who you think is super duper holy, everyone has their pecola, everyone has their little package of challenges that God has given to them. You don't know what they are. You may not know. It's not always physical disabilities. It could be a mental disability. It could be an emotional disability. Don't pry into other people's life don't say things that are insensitive because you really may not know um, what's going on. And I learned that from my own experience. I also learned that as a rabbi. I'll tell you if it's okay, if we have enough time. Please. Years ago, there was an Israeli couple that was supposed to come to Bozeman for Shabbos and they never showed up. So Saturday night, I was upset. You know, my wife was cooking for these tourists and they don't show up. So I emailed the wife who was the one I was interacting with. I said, you know, if you're not going to show up at a Chabad house, you should have the decency of letting us know before Shabbos that you're not coming, right? So now I felt good. I told them what I think. About seven, six days later, five days later, I got an email from the woman. She goes, Dear Rabbi Chaim, I'm so sorry for not emailing to you. Um, but a couple of days before we were meant to leave Israel on our trip, on our honeymoon trip, uh, my husband was killed in a car crash. Oy. And I Googled it. And she wasn't lying. I found the story online immediately. He just finished the army and he was in a car crash and he died. And here I went and emailed the newlywed wife like she didn't have enough trouble in her life. I'm attacking her, about, or not attacking her, but I'm, you know, upset that she didn't show up at Shabbos dinner in Montana and didn't call me to cancel the reservation. So what did I learn from that? It was, it was, a, it was such an eye-opening. Obviously, I felt terrible and guilty, and I responded accordingly. But I learned from that is that you really never know what's going on in someone else's life. So since then, anytime a tourist doesn't show up, which doesn't happen very often, I email them and say, I hope you're okay. Mm. I didn't hear from you. Uh, you guys didn't show up. Is there, are you guys stuck in Yellowstone? Is everything, you know, are you okay? It's the same question I'm asking, but in a respectful, sensitive way, because I really don't know what's going on in their life. But that's really key to everything in life. We don't know what's going on by other people. And therefore, we should take that extra, go the extra mile to just show a little bit extra love, a little bit extra care, sensitivity, you really don't know how your words can affect what what that person's experience of that day will look like. Rabbi Chaim Brook, 
you're really uh, worthy of two podcasts, truly, between your Montana experience, your adoption experience, each on their own, incredible. And the fusion of the two is just beyond. And, and promise, um, me, promise me you'll call me back when I adopt the sixth kid. <laughs> we'll do the update episode, absolutely. Not only, not only will I feature, I want to come visit and, and uh, I Anytime, want to come to that man. bris. Anytime. Unbelievable. I'll bring some kosher meat with me for you. But uh, thank you very, very much for joining us. And uh, we wish you only great success in your child rearing, in your Jewish activities in Montana. Thank you so much, Rabbi Chaim Brook. Thank you so much. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.